Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. For those of you who are visiting, we're in the middle of a series on Revelation. We're working our way through the book. Uh, most weekends, I'm doing uh, a chapter per week. Last week, I did all of chapter 12 and half of chapter 13. Today, we're going to cover the rest of chapter 13. And I'm going to start by just reading it, verses 11 to 18. One of the most infamous uh, you know, passages in the Bible, very rarely spoken on in, in churches, including this one. This is the first time we've ever preached on this passage. Um, but that's because so much speculation has gone on about this passage, and most people would view this as sort of a strange passage. But as we have been seeing in the book of Revelation, is the book of Revelation is not just a prophetic book, it's a pastoral book, and every passage applies to us today. It's not just about something in the future, it is for the church today. It does, it does point ahead to some things that are going to happen in the future, but it also already pastors us today, and that's important. So I'm going to read it. This is the Mark of the Beast passage, and then we're going to work our way through it. But starting in verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, that first verse there, it says there in verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Okay? So recall back two weeks ago in the last message I preached in this series, uh, two weeks ago uh, we saw in chapter 12, Satan is on a rampage. Okay? He is fighting against God's army, okay? Paul talks about this in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and principalities and dark forces and all that sort of stuff. And so chapter 12 of Revelation shows us this battle that's going on behind the scenes, okay? But we can't see that battle. That doesn't mean it's not real. We just can't see it with our physical eyes. That's why we say it's in the spiritual realm. Not in the spiritual realm in the sense that it's not real, but spiritual in the sense that these eyes can't see it. But they're fighting. There's a war going on behind the scenes. Paul talks about it as well. Chapter 13 of Revelation brings us into the physical realm. What, how does this spiritual battle that's going on between Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom, how does that work its way out on the earth in ways that we can see? And chapter 13 explains for us, chapter 12 shows us the spiritual battle. Chapter 13 shows us in the physical realm, what does this look like? And so in the first part of chapter 13, what we saw is the first thing we see in the physical realm is Satan raising up a beast out of the sea. And that's what we saw there in verse 13, verse 1. And I'm not going to go through all of that again, but what we saw two weeks ago is all of that imagery is taken straight out of Daniel, and Daniel himself interprets the imagery. And what that beast out of the sea is, is an empire. 
It's a kingdom, okay? It's a, it's a political entity, a group of nations, a kingdom, an empire that Satan raises up that is to persecute Christians and to oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Revelation is pointing ahead to a very specific kingdom in the future that will fulfill all of the various details of the book of Revelation. But remember what I've been saying throughout this uh, message series, which is Revelation is not just about the future. The people who were reading and hearing the book of Revelation the first century, it was already applying to them. So these are patterns. There isn't just one antichrist empire in the future. John says in 1 John uh, 2.18, I'll just put that up there. John says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that antichrist is coming. So there is an ultimate culminating antichrist empire government that, it, that is coming in the days before Jesus comes. But he says, but don't be fooled. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So there have been many beast empires throughout history. There's a final one that will come, but there have been many throughout history, and there are many today. You can look around the world today, and any nation where there is a government in place that is attempting, and there's a number on the earth right now. You look at North Korea, you look at China, you look even in, at some of the things that are happening now in India. You look at many of the countries in the Muslim world where to be a Christian is a scary thing, and they try to crush the church. They persecute Christians, and they're opposed to God. Each one of those is an antichrist government, okay? That's not a politically correct thing to say. That's not usually how you start out your arms talks or whatever. Hello, I'm so-and-so, and you are part of an antichrist government. That's not how you do it, right? But that is what John says, because behind the scenes, remember, this is not crazy talk by a preacher. Paul says, Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against spirits and principalities and powers. It's a spiritual war. And so those wicked governments that are opposed to Jesus, there's a reason why they do what they do. And there's a reason why there's been governments like that throughout time. Satan literally is behind them, okay? Not in as powerful a sense as the culminating one towards the end, just before Jesus returns. But it's nonetheless and no less Satan who is at work there and who is already doing things. So we saw in Revelation 13... First of all, that there is this, this one beast. One of the ways Satan works is through governments, through nations, through empires. That's the beast that comes out of the sea. But now we see in the second half of Revelation 13, it's not, he's not just working through governments. He's got a second beast that he's going to work through on the earth and that he is already working through on the earth. And that is, now we see another beast. That's what we see in verse 11. Another beast rises up out of the earth. So there's the beast that comes out of the sea. That's a political government nation. And, and there's been many of those antichrist nations and governments, but there's going to be one that comes up out of the earth. Okay. So there's a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. Now, what is this beast from the earth? We're going to look into that, but before we do, there has to be some encouragement. And that encouragement comes from Revelation chapter 10. I'm going to read that to you, and then we'll go on a little journey and discover what is this beast that comes out of the earth, okay? If we go back to Revelation 10, though, starting in verse 1, John sees this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. And I want you to pay attention to all the underlying words. Wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. Now, each of those descriptions is coming straight out of Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 4. These are descriptions of Jesus 
and God the Father is sitting on his throne. That's what these are. They're all taken from there. So this mighty angel, the point is this mighty angel is coming out of the very presence of God. He is an emissary of God. And he's reflecting, just like Moses reflected the glory of God when he came down from Mount Sinai, his face was shining, we see in the Old Testament. In the same way, this angel is coming out of the presence of God and is reflecting some of the same characteristics, the same descriptions that we read about God in Revelation 1 and 4. Now, the important part, though, is verse 2. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, this is no accident that there's this overlap. Chapter 13, the, the, the devil has these two beasts that he works through on the earth. These kind of two main weapons. The one is a political empire. He works through nations. He works through governments to oppress Christianity. The other one is this beast of the earth, which we haven't figured out what that is yet, but he works through a beast out of the sea and he works through a beast out of the earth. Here we see, then this is no accident. It's no coincidence. This is all intentional on the Holy Spirit's part as he's inspiring John and John knows what he's doing. This mighty angel comes out of the presence of God before we get to the beast and his foot, one foot is on the land and his one foot is on the sea. The point is clear. God is sovereign over land and sea and he is sovereign over the beast that comes out of the sea and over the beast that comes out of the earth. That's really important. And this is important to the whole uh, outlook, perspective of the world that we are supposed to get a revelation is this. When you look around the world today, when you look at current events and you see stories of Christians being persecuted and you see stories of governments that do terrible, awful things and oppose God, you can literally say to yourself, I mean, it, it, you know, on the, on the street, it's probably not helpful. But for our understanding as believers, those are antichrist governments. They're not the antichrist. I'm not, not some conspiracy theory. This is the antichrist. They are part of the many. They are part of the antichrist spirit. That is evidence of the devil at work. That's not God doing those terrible things. That is the devil. But at the same time, as we understand that it is the devil's power behind these wicked nations and governments, at the very same time, we remember that God is sovereign over it all. We know who to blame, and we know who to trust. Amen? Amen. We know who to blame. We know who's at work. We know who's causing these things, and we know who to trust. And the fact that God is over top of Satan is comforting, not because he's necessarily going to stop us from, from experiencing pain and suffering. He won't. But what it means is things are never out of his control, and ultimately, he's going to turn all things for our good. Amen? Amen? So now if we go back to, let's go back to Revelation 13. And let's start to, let's study this beast that comes out of the earth and see what is he. It's going to be something different than a government or a nation because that's what the beast of the sea is. So verse 11, then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. Now this is really important, this description he has two horns like a lamb. Again, no, there's no accidents in the book of Revelation. And why, how can a dragon, somehow this beast, this, this, this thing is known as a beast. It's clearly bad. It's wicked. It's, it's Satan's work. It's a beast and it speaks like a dragon. This is clearly devilish. But now there's this odd description that somehow it is like a lamb. Somehow it mimics a lamb. Now, why is that important? In the book of Revelation, the most common, by far, title description of Jesus is lamb, either the lamb or the lamb of God or a lamb. 
Jesus in Revelation, his most common title, his most important title in Revelation is, well, I don't know if most important. How do you, how do you rank them? They're all inspired and they're all him, right? But the most common one is lamb or the lamb of God. And so here we have Satan having a beast that, is, that looks like a lamb. In other words, it is somehow mimicking Jesus. Now, you say this, you know, Revelation is just so weird. Like, Revelation, and I want to again dispel that. Yes, it's, some of the pictures are weird to us in our modern context. But Revelation is not making up new things. Everything in Revelation is being taken out of the rest of the Bible. And this devil or beast, I should say, or dragon that is looking like a lamb is part, a core part of what Jesus taught his disciples in the Gospels. And I'm going to show you just one example. We're going to go back to Matthew 24, Jesus' second longest recorded sermon in the Gospels, and Jesus uh, talking to his disciples, and I want you to see the number one thing he is warning his disciples about, and it is not persecution, even though he warns them about that. It is not disease, although he warns them about that. It's not war. It's not earthquakes, though he warns them about all those things too. He warns them about something else over and above all of those things. And that's, and it, that's going to tie into Revelation 13. Let's just look at Matthew 24 for just a couple of minutes here. Matthew 24, verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, Number one thing, see that no one leads you astray. Before he warns them about persecution, before he warns them about war, before he warns them about any of those things, he says, the number one thing he says is, see that no one leads you astray. Deception is Jesus' number one warning and concern with his disciples. See that no one leads you astray. Now he's going to carry on. Next verse. For many, I want you to notice the word many there, not some, not a couple, not maybe one or two. Again, just like there will be many antichrists, he says, he uses many, many here. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. Okay, now, many will come in my name saying I'm the Christ. Lots of us read that verse and we go, how is that true? How could that be true? Like, how many people actually come or have come throughout history and have literally claimed to be Jesus, have said, I am Jesus, come back in the flesh. Um, now, actually, first thing to answer that question is, it's actually more than you might think, but ultimately the answer is much bigger than that. But, I mean, there's, there's, peop- there's a guy in, in, in Australia right now who has a following of thousands of people and has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars who claims to be Jesus. He has a girlfriend who claims to be Mary Magdalene reincarnated, and you think to yourself, people follow this? It's, it's shocking, but they do, and they give money to it. And there's actually a few other guys right now around the world, you can look it all up, you can Google it, and you can find all kinds of crazies who literally have followings right now in different places in the world who claim to be Jesus, okay? So certainly, I mean, what Jesus is saying here certainly would cover those, but when Jesus says many will come and lead many astray, He's obviously not just talking about people who physically claim to actually be Jesus. Most of us go, that's not very deceptive. If anyone came to me and said they were Jesus, that's not confusing at all, okay? And in the grand scope of things, very few people have been led astray by people like that. Which is why we have to do a little bit, we have to get a little bit of an understanding of the word Christ, okay? Because in our context as Christians, you know, 
uh, 2,000 years after Jesus' life, the word Christ is synonymous with Jesus. I mean, and I'm not talking, again, obviously about swearing, because that's, I mean, to me, that's the most offensive swear words are the ones using Jesus' name in vain, but I'm not talking about swearing, but when someone, when we talk about Jesus Christ, or when we talk about Christ, we literally just mean Jesus. We think Christ is a title for Jesus. But you have to understand, in Bible times, the word Christ wasn't a title for Jesus. I mean, he, he was still just on the earth. The, the word Christ was a, was a word they used. It's from the Greek, which is just Christos, which literally just means anointed. So if you would anoint someone with oil, you were Christos them. You were anointing them. I mean, that's not the right form of the verb, but Christos is the verb you would use when you anointed something. The word for that was Christos. It was an everyday word. It wasn't a title for Jesus. And it actually, it was just the Greek, you know, word that they used in the Old Testament. The word for anointed was Mashiach, which is where we get Messiah from. And the word Messiah wasn't a title originally either. It was just a word that meant anointed as well. In fact, all of the kings and high priests in the Old Testament were known as Mashiachs because they were the anointed ones. Because when you became king or when you became high priest, they did this ceremony where they anointed you with oil. So you were called God's anointed one or God's chosen one for that position. So I could show you, if we had time here today, I could show you a ton of scripture passages where King Saul is called in the Hebrew Mashiach. God's anointed one. David calls him that. I could show you Cyrus, who isn't even a Jew. The Persian king is called the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's chosen one. David is called chosen one. Now, eventually, over time, Mashiach came to refer to the Messiah that is going to come. And now we just use it as a title. But same with Christos. So when Jesus says, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christos, he's not just saying, many are going to come saying they're me. What he's saying is, many will come in God's name, in the name of God, and say, I am the anointed one. I'm from God. I'm the chosen one. And then they'll gather up followings after themselves. Now, when you realize that it's not just someone claiming to outright be Jesus, you can see that this prophecy has more than come true already. I mean, you go through history, we could go through countless, 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 and we could never name them all here. Um, but, I mean, in the 1800s, I'll just give you a couple of famous examples. In the 1800s, here in North America, a man by the name of Joseph Smith claimed to have had visions from God. He said, I'm from God. I'm a prophet in the line of Jesus and Mohammed. He wrote down a book, became known as the Book of Mormon. And today, more, you know, 150 years later, there's about 15 million people around the world who call themselves Mormons and still follow the teaching of Joseph Smith. So, by Jesus' definition here, that's someone coming. I'm from God. I have a revelation from God. Here's the message. And many, many people follow him. That's a false Christ. Muhammad would be another one, right? Muhammad in the seventh century, right? Comes along, says, uh, I'm a prophet in the line of, you know, Abraham and Jesus. And God's given me this revelation. He writes it down in the Quran. Many people follow him. And today, you know, 1,400 years later, you have almost now 1.8 billion people who are following Muhammad's revelation. And we could go on and on and on and on. Many will come as coming from God in my name saying, I am the anointed one, I'm the chosen one, and they will lead many astray. Very true. Right? Very, very true. Now we continue reading, okay? Um, 
next uh, couple of verses down, and many false prophets, because what I wanted to show you is throughout this chapter, this is Jesus' biggest concern is to repeat over and over again, do not be deceived. Watch out for false Christ, watch out for false prophets. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Now, we're going to fast forward a few more verses. Jesus now is going to focus on a specific time in the future. So throughout history, there's going to be many false prophets, many false Christs, and there's really overlap. There's, you don't really, there's not much of a definition change between the two. It's just kind of two of the same thing. But now Jesus' point, he says, throughout history, there's going to be many of these false prophets, many of these false Christs. Now he's going to fast forward to the future, and he's going to talk about a culminating time just before he returns. And he says this, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Then if anyone, and look at how the false Christ, false prophet thing comes up again. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. So people are going to say this. Or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. So what Jesus is saying is, I mean, think about that. Look at great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible, even the elect. So Jesus says, these people, because their, their power is coming from Satan, it's a real power, will actually be able to do miracles, and not just little miracles, not fake miracles, not magic tricks, they will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible, even the elect. So, I mean, think of the deception. I mean, think of the credibility miracles give you. When someone can do miracles, they preach a message, and then they do a miracle, and you go, well, that must be from God. And Jesus says, watch out for that, because people will be able to do miracles. Some of these people will be able to do miracles, and that doesn't mean they're from God. By the way, before we go back to Revelation 13, because you're going to see how closely Revelation 13 uh, is linked. G John was there for this message, and Revelation 13 is very closely linked to Matthew 24. Okay? I'm going to show you that in just a second. But I just want to stop and say this. This is why I am not a miracle follower or miracle bandwagon jumper. Okay, I love when God does miracles. We've had some amazing miracles in this church. Well, including some of the ones at the camp, but even physical healings. We've had some amazing ones that we've celebrated in video testimonies. And I love when God does miracles. It's amazing. He's a miracle, prayer-answering God. That's amazing. We celebrate that. But I don't actually get all that excited about every miracle I hear everywhere else in the world. And you say, well, is that just because you're just you know, negative about anything that's not happening in your church? No, it's not that. I praise God when he's doing miracles anywhere. That's amazing. But the reason I get so excited about the miracles here is because I know these people. I can follow up with them in six months to see if this is a real thing, if this was actually a move of Jesus, if this was something, you know, substantial where we can see follow-up and God actually worked and this was an answer to prayer. And you can't tell that in this day and age of, of the internet and TV and all this sort of stuff where we can hear about things all around the world, you can hear about these revivals, and I'm not saying they're all fake, not at all. I'm just saying, how do you know from 2,000 miles away if something is real or not? And what, what you have is Christians who just kind of revival hop, and online, they're getting all their leading and teaching from someplace that's 1,000 miles away or 2,000 miles away because, hey, that's where God's working because look at all the miracles. Like, do you see all this stuff is happening? People are getting healed. It's revival, da 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 da, -da. Well, Jesus actually says miracles are going to happen, and that miracle doesn't prove 
that the messenger is from Jesus. In fact, in the end times, there are going to be people who do powerful miracles that expressly are not from Jesus. And that is an important thing for us to keep in mind. Well, let's go back to Revelation 13, and uh, let's, uh, let's keep going here. Oh, I'm over a page. Revelation 13, 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Okay? Uh, two horns like a lamb. So here we see again, this is that false Christ. Jesus warned over and over again about false Christ, false prophets. This one is like a lamb. So it's mimicking that. It's a false Christ. And now look at verse 13. I want you to see the, the close parallels here to Matthew 24. And I'll come back and fill in the gaps of verse 12 in just a moment. It performs great signs, just like Jesus said. Even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So great signs, even up to and including fire coming down from heaven. That's like an Elijah Old Testament type power of miracle. This is what the Bible tells us. The fact that somebody has power does not mean the power is necessarily from God. As believers, we know that there is also power that comes from Satan. Now, God is above Satan. Satan is not, it's not an even match. God made Satan, but Satan does have power. And the existence of power does not mean necessarily that God is behind it. Now, the question is, some Christians right here get really nervous because it's like, well, how are we going to know who's from God and who's not? If people are doing miracles that are, that are actually by the miracles of, of that, by the, that are by the power of Satan, how are we going to know a real miracle from a false miracle? And the answer is, you can't tell just by looking at the miracle. Okay? It's this, but this isn't a thing to be afraid of. This isn't a thing to be nervous about. Actually, it's very easy. If we keep our feet founded on God's word and actually stay tightly connected to this book, we won't be deceived. Because the answer to that question is not, you don't have to figure out what the miracle is. You have to figure out what the message behind the miracle is, and that will tell you everything about where it's coming from. And we see that in verse 12. Verse 12, look at the reason behind the miracles. It's the reason. That's the important point. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So if you just look at the miracles, how do you tell the difference between fire falling down from heaven from the devil or fire falling down from heaven, in Elijah's case, from God. How do you tell the difference? And the answer is, you can't. So how do you know who's from God? Don't worry about the miracles. Look at the message behind the miracle. And this false prophet, so what is the beast coming of the earth? It's, it's this false Christ, false prophet, which again, there will be a culminating one in the future. But in the meantime, there have been many and there continue to be many today. That's why it's still applicable to us today. So you look for the message behind the miracle. Now, uh, Galatians 1 verse 8, Paul says this very strongly, and I could look at, get lots from him. Paul says this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, so anything different than the message in here, let him be accursed. This book is the guide. It's not miracles. Don't run after miracles. I, I see, especially young people, and I know, I, I remember when I was younger, I, I, I guess I'm still young, I don't know, I'm 41, but, but when I was younger, anyway, I remember it was so exciting to hear about any place that was miracles. And I can't tell you how many times disillusionment sent, set in later on when you find out, not in every case, some of the character flaws and some of the falls of some of these leaders that were doing miracles. And you go, what's going on there? The answer is, don't get swayed by miracles. Don't search after miracles. Search after the God behind the miracles. And then enjoy the miracles he gives. 
But I want to put a little table up there because that's just what I do. And then we're going to finish up by looking at the mark of the beast. But I wish I could put all scriptures. There's a ton of scriptures with each of these. I just didn't have room to fit it all on there. Okay? So don't look at the, the miracle. Look at the message behind the miracle. So first of all, there is only one God. If that's the messenger, if that's the message behind a miracle, good. If the message is that there are gods other than Jesus, it doesn't matter that there's a miracle or power there. It's not from Jesus. Jesus is God as opposed to Jesus is only a prophet or a good man or a good teacher. If the message behind it is Jesus is God and gives glory to him, that is power from Jesus, right? Faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved. You can't work it up. You know, there's no other way. It's faith in Jesus. That fourth one is an important one, by the way. Repentance and turn from sin. Do you know how many times, if you look in the book of Acts, never mind the rest of the New Testament, if you look in the book of Acts, when the disciples, when the apostles are going around preaching to people to be saved, I always find it very fascinating that they do not only preach, believe in Jesus. I mean, that's central. That's foundational. I mean, believe in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is the way to be saved. But they never preach just belief in Jesus. They always say two things. And you can look it up in the book of Acts. Just go through the book of Acts and pay attention to what they preach. Believe and repent. Believe and repent. Believe and repent. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. True belief in Jesus is always accompanied by a desire. Not always success, none of us is perfect, but is always accompanied by a desire for repentance and true holiness in living. Any message, I don't care how great the miracles are, if the, I, the message you're getting, even if it's not said, but if it's lived or if it's implied, that says sin and sexual immorality are okay, that power is not pointing you to Jesus. But, but miracles that point you towards, I want to live for you, Jesus. I want to give up these sinful ways. Those are miracles from Jesus. So you look at the message. You don't just look at the miracle. Worship Jesus alone as opposed to giving glory to the messenger. And last one I put on there, I wish I could put all the passages on there. Any message no matter how good the miracles are that are accompanied by it, that is accompanied by a message of send me money is suspect in my eyes. It just is. Paul says we are not hucksters of the gospel. Do you know how many times in the book of Acts the disciples, a miracle will happen and people will want to worship them and they stop them. Don't do that, we're only men. If the miracles give glory to the miracle worker or you need to send money to so-and-so so that they'll pray for you or send you stuff, that is not the gospel message. Right? That's not the gospel message. So actually as Christians, when I read Revelation 13, when I read Revelation 24, I don't cower in my bed at night thinking, oh, I wonder if I'm going to be one of the ones who's deceived. I do not. Okay? I want to walk with Jesus and I want to stand on this thing. If we get past the light show, we'll get, and again, real miracles from God are wonderful, and I love them, and we pray for them, and we see them. I wish we could see more of them. But the most important thing is, what is the message behind the miracle? Well, let's, begin to, let's bring this message now to a close. Let's finish this here and talk about the mark of the beast itself for just a couple of moments. Come to this infamous passage, verses 16 to 18. Also it, that's the false Christ prophet, which is... The beast. The beast from the sea is a nation, a government. The beast from the earth is this false pro prophet, false Christ. Causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. 
so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, again, this is one of the most infamous passages in Scripture. So much speculation and imagination has gone into this passage. And, and again, by well-meaning people. Um, but what is going on here? And so much fear and, and about this passage. So what is, what's going on here? I want to start by just a, a quick story. I've told this before when I was doing my end times course a few years ago. But um, there was two amazing guys. When I went to, to university in, in British Columbia, these two guys I, I lived in dorm with, awesome guys. And uh, I remember going to our first basketball game of the season there at school. We we're going to watch our, our university team, the, the TWU Spartans. We we're going to watch them play against some other school. And so we walked into the gym, and they, it, it would cost $2 to go to the game. So we were bringing our toonies, give it to the person there. And then she uh, stamps my hand. So because, you know, if you have to come out to go to the bathroom or do something, you can just come back in then because you got the stamp. So I got the stamp in my hand. I look behind me, and these two guys I'm coming with, their brothers, they come into the, to the table, and the lady goes to give them the stamp, and they pull their hands back, and they say, no, no thanks, we'll not have the stamp. And she's like, you don't want, I mean, if you come out, you won't be able to come back in if you don't get the stamp without paying again. They said, we, we know, we know, but we just don't want the stamp. Now, at first, I just thought to myself, okay, that's a bit strange, but I have my own issues as well, right? Like, I don't like sparkles and sprinkles and all that kind of nasty stuff. So I get it. Maybe they just have a thing with stamps. Fine. All good, right? So anyway, later I asked them, I said, like, so, you know, what's with the no stamp thing? You just don't like to touch the stamp? I mean, I get it. It's kind of weird, kind of kiddish. Uh, and they said, well, no, their mother. And again, these are well-meaning people, awesome people. But what are you going to do? If this is what you believe this passage is teaching, then you've got to follow through on it. They were being consistent. They said, our mom taught us, you know, someday some man is going to rise up and he's going to mark people with the mark of the beast. And you have got to be careful because one of these days it's going to be the mark of the beast and you won't know it and you'll get marked and, you'll, and then you'll be marked. And that means hell. And so these guys would refrain from getting any kind of a mark on their hands because they were afraid they would get tricked into taking the mark of the beast. Okay? And I've heard lots of other people speculate things like what happens if, you know, someone holds you down and gives you the mark of the beast? Are, you know, are you now condemned to hell forever? And so I just want to say right off the top, can I, just in defense of God's character, I just want to say something to you that I'm 100% confident in, okay? Nobody ever is going to be judged by God or for sure ever cast into hell because they were tricked into taking a mark or because they were forced into taking a mark. Is not God just and merciful? Can you imagine him throwing someone into hell who's like, Oh, Jesus, I've loved you so much all my life. I didn't know it was the mark and I took it. No, can you imagine that? Never. Never would Jesus do anything like that ever. It would not even cross his mind to do such a thing. Nobody will be cast into hell because of, and never mind the mark of the beast, because in any way of being tricked there or being forced there. Everybody who goes to hell has made a decisive rejection of Jesus and that's why they're cast there. Okay? It's really, really important. Okay? So now, having said that, there's no question that the consequences of taking the mark are serious. If we read in Revelation 14, and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, 
And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamps. There's no question. God views the mark very seriously. But I want you to see now, it's not, it's not so much about having a mark. I'll show you what this is about. This isn't about having a mark on your body so much as it is about this. If anyone worships the beast. If anyone worships the beast. The thing that gets you set, sent to hell is not that something was put on your body. The thing that gets you sent to hell is a decisive rejection of Jesus Christ and a choice to worship the beast. Okay? Now, I want to explain something else here. You have to know in Bible times and in biblical language and historically, worship does not just mean love. A lot of people just think, if you love the beast instead of Jesus, well, yes, if you love the beast instead of Jesus, that's, that's worshiping the beast. But do you know that most worship of the beast does not come from love? It comes from fear. You look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think all those people who bowed to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar were bowing because, oh, this great king, I love him so much. Every morning I wake up and his mercies are new every morning. No. They bowed down because he said anyone who doesn't is going into the furnace. And yet they all bowed anyway. Why? Did they bow because they loved Nebuchadnezzar? Or because they feared him? And the answer is they worshiped because of fear. Whether you bow from fear or whether you bow from love, it's still worship. There will be intimidation. There's always intimidation when the devil is involved. But the question is, anyone who worships, anyone who bows to the beast, whether out of fear or worship, and rejects Jesus as a result, those are the ones who are condemned. The point is worship. Who will you worship? Who will you obey? This is also why, by the way, I am not worried about technology either. When it comes to this passage, there's been so much speculation. You know, so many Christians online sending articles and stuff. Hey, have you heard about this? In Japan, video game players are putting chips in their hands. And what do you think about that? Well, first of all, it's probably not a great idea. But is that the mark of the beast? No. You know, doctors now, uh, they, they'll, they'll, they can put chips in you to monitor in certain places like, to monitor things like heart, I think maybe even diabetes at some point, but all, all kinds of different things. I don't, I'm not an expert in all that, but they're implanting chips in people now to monitor important health things. And people send me articles, look, our medical system is, is the beast has some beastly wait times perhaps, right? But it's not the beast, right? Okay? Um, if you're at your doctor's and you have a heart condition and your doctor says, I, need, I want to put this chip in you to monitor your heart, you can gladly say yes if you want. I mean, you don't have to. The Bible's not saying you have to. But it's not technology that is marked the beast. Now, maybe they'll use technology as part of this mark in the future. Um, but that's not the mark of the beast. The point is worship. Worship. So if your doctor says to you, you need to have this chip, but we'll only give it to you if you sign this document that basically means you're in agreement with a whole bunch of things that, that are against God's word, then you say no. Then you say no. Because this is about who do you bow to. You want to talk about relevant? Yeah, this is going to happen in the future in, in a terrible time just before Jesus comes back and there will be a terrible culmination of this evil just before Jesus returns. But this is already happening now around the world. This is already things that we could see happening in our country. What happens if at some point the government says, 
or, or a university says, you can't enter this particular program unless you sign off on this, 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 and this. And actually, signing off on that means you're in agreement with a bunch of things that go totally against God's word and against Jesus. What do you do in that case? You say, well, if I don't sign it, I won't get to be a teacher. The message, or whatever it is, right? Whatever, a doctor, or professional, or this or that. Whatever it is, right? If you don't sign off on this, the government says, or a bank says, if you don't sign off on this, you can't bid on this contract, or you can't get this loan. What do you do then? Say, well, in order to keep in business, I have to sign. I have to put the sticker up in my window, whatever it is. Revelation is very clear, and I'm not saying that any of those things is the mark of the beast, not at all. That's something in the future. I don't know what that's going to be. But in the meantime, the spirit of the beast is already at work in the world today now because there's been many antichrists and many beasts. And whether you bow out of fear for your finances or whether you bow because you actually just love it, the, the result is the same. Will you worship the beast? Now, again, I'm not setting this up as you're going to hell the moment you do one of these things. This mark of the beast at the end of time is going to be so explicit. But the message of Revelation is do not bow. Don't sell your soul for a career. Don't sell your soul for money. Don't sell your soul for ease of life. Revelation says, stand true. We're making a decision in our lifetimes here on earth. Will we follow the beast, whatever that is, in our day and age, or will we follow Jesus? We can only have one of them as our master, amen? And the really cool thing is that today is baptism. And the reason I think that's cool is because baptism is a mark. God's servants are marked. We see that in the book of Revelation as well. Satan's servants are marked. We see that here as well. But baptism is a mark. People come and publicly testify, Jesus is my God. It's a mark of whose team that we're on. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to see some amazing testimonies and celebrate as we see a bunch of baptisms. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness and your mercy. You truly are worth following. I pray, Jesus, that you would give us courage in these times to bow to you and only to you. Give us joy along with our courage. May the joy of the Lord be our strength as a church. May your spirit rest heavily on each of those who's getting baptized today and their families and friends. In your name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen.